Well, good morning. My name is Jeremy, and I have the privilege of serving as the children's pastor here at the chapel. Um, and I enjoy teaching children, and I always like to bring something up just to be a visual uh, help. We will get to that later. It's just a block of wood, if anybody's wondering. This morning I was thinking as we were singing that um, we often come and we spend some time in prayer and in song giving to God and then we sit down ready for the sermon to receive, right? And I want to challenge you this morning to continue to be thinking about giving to God. Um, Our lesson today is really going to be maybe a hard one. I'm going to challenge you to be thinking um, honestly about where you are in your seeking after God. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Calvin and Hobbes cartoons, one of my favorite. Um, Calvin is uh, a young boy who just gets into trouble a lot, and he has a lot of thoughtful things to say about life. But one of his cartoons, he's sitting in his desk at school with his fist in the air. He's saying, I got 75% of the answers correct. And in today's society, doing something 75% right is outstanding. If government and industry were 75% competent, we'd be ecstatic. And he's arguing with his teacher, right, saying 75 is good. And I thought, do we do that as believers, as Christians who are following after God? Are we okay to be at 75%? I don't mean our time or like 75% we're good, 25% we're sinful. I mean How much of your heart have you dedicated to seeking after God? Are you following, seeking him wholeheartedly? We see that in the New Testament, right, where the lawyer asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus asked, what does the law say? And the lawyer says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus replied, do this and you will live. So Jesus was acknowledging, yes, you are correct. If you do that all, 100%, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But nobody can do that. And I think we gloss over that passage. I know I did. And when I was just reading this, um, just growing up, I just kept thinking, oh, that's the answer right there. Just do it with all your heart. And we can't do that. We must rely on redemption from Jesus Christ, right? He is the one who has done it. And so this morning, I want to look at this story in 2 Chronicles 34, King Josiah of Judah. And I want us to really reflect and think about where are we in terms of our drift. And by that, I mean, have we kind of settled into a place where we think we're doing okay, not realizing that we're missing a whole lot? We're missing out on worship, true worship of God. See, D.A. Carson in Christianity Today described this delusion in our church. I'm not talking about necessarily just here in this church. I know in my heart I see this, but I would challenge you to consider, do you see yourself in this drift? D.A. Carson says, we drift toward compromise and we call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we've been liberated. Do you do that? I know I catch myself doing that a lot. 
I rationalize, right? I diminish. I think I'm okay. So this morning, I want to challenge you. Our purpose this morning is to look at the story of King Josiah and, and pick out certain obedience principles to follow towards wholehearted worship. Let's remove what hinders and seek truth that we might be missing that will help us lead us towards wholehearted worship. Let me pray this morning, and then we'll jump right into our text. Our Heavenly Father, we just come to you right now, humble, asking for your help this morning. Uh, we're opening up your word. We're explaining the meaning, and God, we ask that the Holy Spirit would do your work of illuminating and, and um, pressing upon our hearts our need. Convict us this morning, God, that we may pursue you wholeheartedly. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, background to King Josiah before we jump into the text. I'm actually going to be jumping through the whole chapter of verse 34. Don't worry, it won't take me long. But a um, little background, he is the king of Judah at a young age. Assyria is in power. Eighty years before Josiah came to power, the northern kingdom had been captured due to idolatry. That's going to be key in our message today. The people were exiled to Assyria. Assyrians had come into the land and occupied it. Uh, current prophets were Micah, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk. And they had been warning the people to turn to the Lord. So as if seeing Israel taken away was not enough, prophets continued to warn. And still, it says that they were doing more evil than the nation's whom the Lord destroyed before Israel occupied the land. That's astounding. That's hard to imagine. But Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, and his father, Amon, had done evil in the sight of the Lord for the last 60 years. So this is what is given to young King Josiah. Second Chronicles 34. Follow along with me if you can. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father. He did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father, and in the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram and the carved and the metal images. He made dust of them and scattered it over graves of those who had sacrificed to them throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Verse 8. Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan the son of Azaliah and Messiah the governor of the city and Joah the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. Verse 14, while they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. 18, then Shaphan the secretary, secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes Go inquire of the Lord for me, for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Skip down to verse 29. And the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem 
And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in his book. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. And then chapter 35, verse 1. Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem. All right. So that's a long story, succinctly put. Um, I love Old Testament stories, I think, because I identify with uh, the Israelites. These, this group of sinners, I think, is, is just kind of something that I identify with more. And I see just that cycle, right, of apostasy and repentance and God saving them and then going right back into the same problems of idolatry mainly. And so this morning, we're going to take seven principles that we find in this story. They're, they're, like I said, obedience principles that will help lead us towards wholehearted worship. The first one on your outline there is recognize God's inimitability. Um, This is an attribute of God I don't think that is taught very much. Inimitability is is his attribute that he alone is not capable of being imitated. Um, We just sang, behold our God, right? Behold our King. Nothing can compare. A lot of you are wondering how to spell inimitability, right? (laughs) Inimitability. I-N-I-M-I-T-A-B-I-L-I-T-Y. And that is not to bring a, a big word into the outline simply because this is a unique word. It's unique to God in the sense that he is the only thing that cannot be imitated. Yahweh defies imitation. He is matchless, incomparable. And so we need to give him what he alone deserves, right? We just sang that. Behold our God. And it's not just his power. We need to be thinking about this in terms of it's his actual character. It's not that he, he is just a little above the rest of the gods, right? Gods are false. There are no gods. He alone is God. He says in Isaiah 45, I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me. So regardless of what we're doing, what we're thinking, what we're making up in our minds or carving out of wood and worshiping, God is God alone. That is his inimitability. And Josiah, at a young age, recognizes this. I mean, gods are everywhere. And I don't know if he looks around and realizes that they are just inanimate, meaning they've been sitting on, this has been sitting on my shelf for 10 years. Guess what? It hasn't once moved, hasn't talked to me, hasn't done anything. It's lifeless. And you think, well, that's silly to worship an inanimate piece of wood or stone, whatever it is. And I agree, it is silly. And today I want to challenge you to think about what are the gods that we today are seeking after that we don't really actually think too much about. And if we did, we would say, that's silly. Why am I doing that? And so he recognized God's inimitability, point one. And the principle that we draw from this is to seek the God of the Bible. 
Um, scripture is full of promises that he will find you if you seek him with all your heart, Deuteronomy 4. Those who seek me, find me, Proverbs eight seventeen. He will draw near to you, James 4. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save, Zephaniah three seventeen. What about when you don't feel like seeking after God? Because that's a question that comes up, right? I mean, it's one thing to say, seek the God of the Bible. What if you're just not feeling like that's something you want to do? And I acknowledge there's, there's times in life when it's difficult, right, to seek after God. Well, I want to challenge you. When you don't feel like seeking after God, seek after God. It's exactly when you don't feel like seeking after God that you must seek after him. You need to hear some truth from God's promises to be near you, to take great delight in you, and to rejoice in you. That is exactly what you need. Be obedient in seeking after God. It's not about waiting for that feeling. Train your heart with truth. Know God's character, that he is beyond imitation. He alone is God. So recognize God's character. Seek after him towards wholehearted worship. Point two, after Josiah recognized that God is God alone, says immediately, verse 3 through 7, in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of his father, and the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places of the ashram and the carved and metal images. This was a radical purging that went on. King Josiah, he, he not only addressed the what, but also the how of purging idols out of your life. Ezekiel 14 helps us define a little bit what idolatry is. I know um, there have been a lot of studies out there and a lot of talks about what exactly is idolatry today. And it's important for us to understand that, to recognize that. And Ezekiel 14 describes um, the elders of a, of a town and they had basically placed idols in their heart. And it describes them as um, Idolatry is a thing that is set in your heart which will make you fall into sin. And I think that's helpful for us to look at and to see. If something is in your heart, remember it doesn't have to be something on a shelf somewhere. If something is in your heart that is causing you, leading you to sin, it is most likely an idol in your life. And you might argue, well, how long does something have to be in my heart to become an idol, right? Well, if you're asking that question, it's an idol, right? Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite commentaries, says an idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. It is the greatest danger of all in the spiritual life. John McMath put it succinctly this way, idols are more in the self than on the shelf today. And so that's what we're going to be doing this morning is really looking at our hearts. Do you recognize idolatry when you see it? I mean, when, when we think about idolatry in the Old Testament, it's, we think of it as an easy thing. But even back then, they recognized that it was a heart issue. What does modern idol worship look like? Well, we have an adversary who is subtle. The devil knows how to disguise idolatry to make it more palpable, more accepting. Today, we may not bow down to the little round things, right? Carved images as Israel did, but... We give ourselves to a pantheon of false gods, things that we seek after above God. Materialism, pleasure, leisure, these are the ones that we all kind of, when we think about it, we're like, yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's an idol. 
What about your identity other than in God? What about your entertainment, security? Um, Some might say self is where all comes to, right? Idolatry of self is supreme because we can trace all other forms of idolatry back to self. So beware that you do not place yourself in the place of God. So how do we identify these idols? I think that would be practical for us to say, what are some ways that we can say, okay, this is a way for me to identify? And I'm going to think, I want to ask you this morning to actually carry this out, maybe this week. Find something that you're thinking that could be an idol and just remove it and see what happens. See if you can live without it. What about phones? I mean, there's a lot of things in our hearts, right? But there are very few actual objects in our life that we can say, that's an idol, unless it just comes to mind because that is something we spend a lot of time with, whether it's games, play, you know, play games, video games. But the phone, I just thought that came up over and over again in my research. Why are phones such an issue? I think devices may be a close second under self just because they are the conduit to so many other distractions that can take the place of God. I'm not asking you to throw your phone in the burn barrel, to grind it up into powder and to spread its ashes, but it may be worth considering, how do I use what God has given me? How am I managing what God has blessed me with so that I am not replacing whether it's your time, your relationship, your worship with things. So here are some things to think about, questions to ask, whether you consider something to be an idol or not. And this, I, 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 I got this off of an article that I thought was very practical. It had some good biblical um, content to it that would help us understand what an idol is. So the difference between a godly desire and pursuit and those distractions that set in your heart to make you fall into sin. This is how you might be able to figure out what the difference is. Would you compromise your belief or your convictions for it? Um, In other words, would you do something that is, you know is wrong in order to keep it? That's a good question to ask. Will its absence or removal anger you? It's another good question to think about. Does it stir up in your heart that anger because you want it back? It's unhealthy, right? Do you value it over people? And I know there's, there's a lot of, uh, uh, you know, qu- other questions to ask and things to be thinking about. Well, wh- what about if it's something that helps me value people? You know, and then you've got to think about all of that. And in the end, you're going to have to just, in your own heart, ask God to be gracious to you in exposing those. Question four, does it pull you away from God? And I know there's a lot of people who would say, well, there's those neutral things, right, that don't really pull me away or pull me towards him. I would say that's hogwash. There's no neutrality. God has created it. God either wants it in your life to draw him to draw you to him or it's in your life as a way towards sin that will draw you away from God. So deal radically with sin. I think that's the principle there. Deal radically with it. If it's a question, why wouldn't you get rid of it? So this week, I'm going to challenge you. Find some things that you think, this might be an issue in my life. Get rid of it. See what happens. Does it make you angry? Does it make you anxious? Does it make you want to maybe compromise on your convictions? 
Does it pull you away from God? So test those things. Josiah obeyed God. He recognized the sin of idolatry. He eliminated the practice. He attacked the cause by removing the high places. So it wasn't just the what, but how he did this. Listen to what he did. He burned the altars. He ground everything to powder. He spread them out. He even got the, the, the bones of the dead priests and ground them all up and spread them over the land, the graveyards to desecrate them, to make sure that it wouldn't ever happen again. It made it basically um, null to be able to ever use that place again as an altar to false gods. He did it completely. And so, because idolatry is subtle, once we've taken down those high places in our lives, I want to challenge you to be careful, to be sober and vigilant, vigilant to guard yourselves from rebuilding those, bringing them back into our lives, right? Sometimes when we think of an idol in our lives, we put it on a shelf or back behind something or in a drawer only to go back to it again. So what distracts you? What's distracting you right now, right? Identify those things that keep you from fellowship with God, from from worship and remove everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and do it thoroughly. That's the principle there. As we continue in the story, Josiah in verse 8, it says, in the 18th year of his reign when he had cleansed the land and the house, okay, so he's kind of taking these steps, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. That's kind of a simple point here, but he, he focuses attention on God's temple, the dwelling place of Yahweh, right? And you think about the, the, the wilderness tabernacle and all the detail that went into building that, all the little clasps and all the curtains and everything that went into that, and then think so much more about the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem. There was a lot of detail, a lot of extravagance, but it was for the sake of showing the glory of God to the nations. And King Solomon, when he inaugurated the completed temple and he prayed that the people would, not just in Jerusalem, but the nations would recognize that God's name was attached to the temple. He said this, Thus all the peoples of the earth will know your name and revere you, as does your people Israel. And they will recognize that your name is attached to this house that I have built. The tabernacle housed the glory of God. And it says in Exodus 40 that when God was present, the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. You might see where I'm going with this. Today, where is that tabernacle? It says in Scripture, your body is the house in which God dwells. He no longer dwells in tents or buildings. He dwells in his people. And so as Josiah focused his attention on the dwelling place of God to rededicate it, today we need to consider where is God dwelling? inside of me, right? So your body is the temple of God. It says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 
1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. For 2 Corinthians 6, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Romans 12.1 may be familiar. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Is it beginning to settle in, to sink in, to think, God dwells within me? What am I doing to honor him with my body? Well, we can be healthy, right, as stewards of your body. We can be honorable as you see your value through God's eyes. We can be helpful to bless others. These are ways that we can continue to use our body, God's temple, for his glory. But we know that we are selfish, right? We seek excuses. Um, And so we need to be cautious that we don't delude ourselves. Remember what D.A. Carson said, we, we, we kind of drift sometimes. And so this is an area, I think, that we do this. We begin to rationalize decisions of what we do because we want what we want, right? We shrug away the implications as trivial just because you want freedom to do as you wish, to wear what you want, to live as you like, to entertain yourself as you desire, to watch what you want, to relax when you want, to say what you think, to do and go where you want to go, and see what you want to see, and ultimately decide for yourself what is acceptable, right? Suddenly, we don't sound so honoring. We're not even thinking about presenting our bodies as worship anymore. 1 Corinthians 10 reminds us, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so how are you honoring God with your body this morning? The tabernacle of holy God, the dwelling place of the Spirit. Do you see that God's name is attached to this house? Not this house, this house. God's name is attached. And so rededicating God's temple in Josiah's day was important for people to recognize God's glory. And so it is today important for us to be giving back to him what is his for his honor. Only then will we then move towards wholehearted worship. Let's recognize that and rededicate our bodies for his honor. Number four, as we're continuing in our story, it says in verse 14 through 18, while they were bringing out the money that they had been Brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. And Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. So this is kind of a turning point, right? This is the the big moment in this story where suddenly the book of the law of Moses, and I don't even know how this happens, but it does show just how immersed in idolatry they were. That the book of the law of Moses was lost in the temple. It's like saying that we have a Bible in here somewhere and we've lost it. Where could it be? Well, if it had been cluttered with idols and other things, distractions, over years and years and years, we can see how this might have happened. It may have been specifically the book of the law, which would have been the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, or perhaps just Deuteronomy, In any way, it was specific instruction to God's people concerning worship, 
matters of law, of celebrations, ways of remembering God. And it was also the covenant saying, this is what will happen if you do these things. This is what will will happen if you don't do these things. So God's instruction to the people had been buried, forgotten, neglected. And the distracting idols and the affairs of life had covered this. They had been replaced. And the prominence of God's covenant and law for the people within one generation was replaced. The written word of Yahweh had become simply a book, as you read how Shaphan describes it. He comes to the king and says, I've been given a book. And to his credit, King Josiah says, read it. I want to hear about it. So, point number four, rediscover God's word. Read the Bible. That's the principle that we want to get from this, right? seems simple, but an unread Bible is just as lost as the book of the law in Josiah's day. It's not a resource for you to go to and like a yellow pages, right? Uh, I just got a yellow pages in the mail a couple weeks ago, and I thought, I did not know they still had these. You remember when we used to go there, and we used to think, oh, I need a phone number. I need to go look in the yellow pages. We treat the Bible sometimes that way, right? We wait for something to happen, to come to mind, to say, I need to look that up sometime. Read God's word not as a resource, but as a way of instructing you, convicting you, teaching you, training you. It says the word of God is living and active in Hebrews 4. Surgically discerns our hearts. It's God-breathed, profitable for you, for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, 2 Timothy 3. It is all we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1. And God's word is a lamp, a light illuminating right paths. Psalm 119. And yet we don't like correction, do we? We often avoid confrontation. We don't want to be held accountable. And so I want to challenge you, like the psalmist in Psalm 139, he says, search me and know me. Know my anxieties. See if there's any wicked way in me. And that is with the assumption of God, I am placing my heart before you, I know that it is safe, and I want you to remove any evil in it. There's a story of Robert Louis Stevenson, the author, when he was a young boy. Um, he was looking out his window at night, watching a man light the lamps in the streets, right, the gas lamps. And his parents came in and just asked him what he was doing, and he turned around excitedly, and he said, the man is punching holes in the darkness. And I thought, that's a neat way of thinking about the work that God's Word does in in cutting holes in a dark world, illuminating right paths. And we need to be in God's word regularly to be seeing that. So is God's word prominent to you, or is it buried right now? Is it a part of your everyday habit? Are you rediscovering his instruction daily for correction and towards wholehearted worship? Point number five, as we continue in our story, we're going to look at verse 19. It says, And the king, when he heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes, and he said, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For it is great, this wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. 
when the king heard the words, what did he do? He responded, right? So he, uh, he sent and gathered all the elders as well, all the people, both great and small, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant. So when you read God's word and it speaks to you, there should be a response. There should be a radical response. Up to this point, I think King Josiah and the people thought they were doing pretty good, right? Maybe they were at that 75% mark, thinking, eh, I'm not doing too bad. They're looking around, comparing, right? I don't know that they had reason to think otherwise, except that we know that the prophets of God were specifically there to warn them, right? Jeremiah had been there. Somehow they had missed this. And now Josiah is at a point where he is reading about their failures as a nation. And when he realizes that his kingdom and his people are in great danger, more than he had imagined, he wasn't defensive. He didn't try to justify their sin. He didn't make excuses or shift blame. He didn't minimize the failures. He showed humility, remorse. It was a proper fear of God. It says, so he tore his robes, and this was an outward sign of an inward brokenness. It was used an expression of grief and penitence. I don't expect us to be doing that today, right? But I thought that is a way to show that we are genuinely responding in humility. Later on, prophet Joel says, rend, do not rend your hearts, rend your hearts, not your garments, he says. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Rend your hearts, not your garments. And that isn't to say that there isn't an outward expression of penitence, but that genuinely, Response should be within the heart. To his credit, he didn't hide. He didn't um, justify his sin. He says that he had a proper fear of the Lord. I have a five-year-old, and my five-year-old kind of shows me sometimes what I am like um, when confronted with sin. Uh, he usually has two responses when found out, when he's in the middle of something he should not be doing. And I like to walk into his room every once in a while just to check on him. And um, if he has something he should not be having, uh, response number one is to run. Um, and I think that's a healthy fear, a little bit. Uh, we're working on the whole running thing. But the other response, and I love this, um, and I saw this one time when um, parents, you know, when it gets really quiet in the house, and it's been too long. You haven't had anybody come asking for anything. And this had happened, and there was a little moment there when I thought, this is actually kind of nice, you know? My wife and I are enjoying some quiet time, and I thought, but it's been too long. And as I thought, is it worth getting up and checking? Right at that moment, I, I got a smell of fingernail polish. And this was, it's not like he's right next door to us. This was across the house. And I thought, well, my teenage daughters, they usually do their fingernail polish, but that's in the bathrooms, not usually throughout the whole house. And so at that moment, I thought, I better get up and just check. And so I opened up his room door, and this was his response. He had fingernail polish, blue fingernail polish, and he had emptied it out. He was sitting in his bed, so it was on his hands, on his pillow, 
on his pajamas, on his sheets, on the carpet, on the dog. <laughs> and immediately, you could see it in his mind, it was just a millisecond of, can I run? No. And he came right to me, held up the bottle of fingernail polish, the empty bottle of fingernail polish, and went, ugh. And I love that because he came to me, recognized his sin, and handed me what he was not supposed to have. He came to me to deal with the issue, right? He, he stepped towards me, came in a little bit of fear, but also in trust, and wanted me to go ahead and deal with the issue. And so we look at Josiah, and he immediately humbles himself before God. He steps towards God. He enters his presence in fear and in worship, and he says, I want you to deal with this. And so today we need to, we need to think about how am I responding in humility to God's word let him deal with your sin, with your hurt, with your anger. It's a safe place to be. Let him deal with your wants, your pride, all those idols that we talked about before. Let him manage those. Read Psalm 139. This would be helpful to just understand your heart in going to God with sin. When God's word reveals sin and guilt, respond immediately with a heart of repentance. It says in Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. How people respond to God's word, Wearsby says, Warren Wearsby is a commentator and author, he says, how people respond to God's word is a good indication of their spiritual appetite and the strength of their desire to please the Lord. So as you're looking at your heart and just kind of recognizing some of these things, how do you respond to God's word? It's a good indication. Do you respond to God's correction with a broken and contrite heart toward wholehearted worship? You see that your heart being broken still doesn't need to be half, right? A broken heart can still be wholehearted. You can serve and seek after God with a wholehearted um, approach, even with a broken heart. He is there for you. As we continue in our story, it says that in uh, verse 31, the king made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, and he made all who were present in Israel to serve the Lord their God. So, point number six, he restored heart worship. Right? This was a genuine seeking after God by the people. He renewed that relationship. He restored that fellowship with God. Psalm 51 continues or at the beginning there, it says in Psalm 51, 10 through 13, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. So God knows your heart, right? And he wants to be 
part of that. He wants to have your entire heart, not in pretense. Pretense is actually what the people of Judah says later were accused of. They were attempting to make something that is not the case appear true. This is an inward, genuine response of restoring worship. It says in Jeremiah 3.10 that as he, as he looked at Judah later on, it says, Yet for all her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. It kind of reminds me of that story of um, a mother who told her son to sit in his chair or he would get a spanking. And the boy sat down and said to his mom, I might be sitting on the outside, but inside I'm still standing. And we might see that a lot in kids, right? It's a good reminder for us that we do this with God all the time, right? Outwardly, there are pretenses of doing things. And we even do this for those who are watching us, for our friends. We want them to have a good impression of us. And in pretense, we are worshiping. But it is not a wholehearted worship. And so this is another way that we can look at seeking after God wholeheartedly. Restore that heart worship. And then finally, point seven says in chapter 35, verse one, that Josiah kept a Passover to the Lord. Um, as we continue to see in verse 18 of 35, he says, no Passover like it had been kept in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet. None of the kings of Israel had kept such a Passover as was kept by Josiah and the priests and the Levites and all Judah and Israel who were present and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of the reign of Josiah, this Passover was kept. It's important for us to celebrate God's goodness. Um, we remember daily acts of mercy in our lives, right? And how do you do this? What are the disciplines in, in place in your life to, um, to let people know, to be aware of God's goodness? Do you have habits? Is worship part of your lifestyle? We should be celebrating God's goodness at family dinner. We should be telling stories at small group of what has happened and how God has blessed you. We should be letting our friends hear of the way God has provided for us. We should be here in worship, sharing with one another how God's mercy towards us leads us towards wholehearted worship. I hope you're doing that as you come and you worship this morning, not just to receive, but to give, to continue to um, give God glory. Later on in Josiah's story, it says that in 2 Kings, we, talk, we hear about him, and it says, Before Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. That's, that's quite a statement there, right? But in the end, there was a reckoning, right? The people of Judah were taken captive by Babylon, And in our lives today, we need to recognize there is a reckoning, right? We can't be like the optimist. There's, this was um, just a story I heard. It says, the optimist fell 10 stories, and at each window bar, he yelled out, all right so far. We can't be like the optimist. The optimist looks around at his surroundings, and he compares himself, and he may just say, I'm doing okay so far. There's a reckoning, isn't there? 
If we are all in a free fall because of half-hearted worship, it does no good to look at our immediate surroundings, to compare ourselves with our culture, our friends. We compare, we compare, we compare, looking around us. And we fail to see ourselves against the standard of God's word and holiness. So what idols have caused you to neglect God's word to you? What idols are covering your understanding of God's holiness? You see, he wants those idols thoroughly removed along with any reminder of them. Don't just set them aside for a time being. Treat them radically. So I'm going to ask you, this week, will you take some steps towards wholehearted worship by identifying those things? rededicating yourself, eradicating those distractions from your life. If nothing else, try this week and see what happens when you remove those. What King Josiah could not do, King Jesus has accomplished. That's something we need to recognize today, right? Where Josiah reformed, Jesus redeemed. And it is not that we can't continue to worship God and seek to do so wholeheartedly, we definitely want to do that. But in the end, we are incapable of being perfect, right? Of giving our whole hearts to God because we are selfish. We are sinners needing Christ. And so he gives us a new heart. He calls us to submit to his lordship with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our strength. Jeff and the Praise team are going to come up and close this morning in a song, and um, as I do so, I want to pray for us, ask God to continue just to work in our hearts, and um, remind us that his name is attached to our dwelling, right, to our bodies, and that we want to give glory to God in what we do. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning grateful for your word. We thank you that we have it readily accessible to us. I pray, God, that we would value it, that it would be a part of our everyday life, that we wouldn't just use it as a resource when it comes to mind, but that we would daily just be in the habit of spending time in your word, hearing your instruction, your correction, your training, Because we know, God, our hearts need to be trained. We can't trust our hearts. And so, God, this morning we want to acknowledge that we have things in our lives that need to be dealt with, dealt with radically. Help us here at Cape Bible Chapel to be leaders in this community as we seek to make disciples Help us to humbly submit to your will, to your guidance from your word, your instruction. And I pray, God, that we would be an example to those around us who are watching, that we would completely remove the things that distract us, that hinder us from fellowship with you. And God, let us recognize that you are the one and only God, that you love us, And our desire is to love you with all of our hearts, soul, and strength. Help us where we fail, God. And this morning, I want to echo Zephaniah's 
benediction. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Thank you, God, for being a God who loves us and cares for us and continues through your word to teach us, to instruct us, and to lead us towards wholehearted worship. I pray, God, that Jesus Christ would be glorified, that those here would lift his name high, God, in their lives, in the words they say, in the things they do. And I pray, God, that you would just continue to um, work in our hearts, help us to grow, to be sanctified, and um, to continue to be a light to those around us in the dark world. I pray these things in your name. Amen.